This is Africa Digest. Good evening and welcome to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, giving you news from an African perspective, broadcasting to you live from our studios in Johannesburg, South Africa. Now we are on the frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band to Southern Africa and online it's www.channelafrica.co.za. My name is Samora Mangesi and Zwala Nitulo will be on the news with Sani Matebula is uh, here as well with economics and Musi Budimokura will give you your sport. Top stories on Africa Digest at this hour. The South Sudan warring parties sign their final agreement to begin a new chapter of lasting peace. Domestic violence in Nigeria comes under the spotlight. In economics, rating agency Moody's says the current land debate in South Africa is creating policy uncertainty. And lastly in sports, the IOC backs calls by Japanese organizers to implement daylight savings time at the 2020 Tokyo, Champion, 2020 Tokyo Olympics to safeguard athletes and soaring temperatures. But first, let's find out what's happening in the news with Zhualani. Thank you, Samora. Good afternoon. The United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has laid tributes at the funeral of one, his prede- of one of his predecessors, Kofi Annan. Annan died last month at the age of 80. The service was held in Ghana's capital, Accra. The BBC's Mayeni Jones has the details. Mr. Annan is said to have requested simple, solemn funeral proceedings with no frills. But many here held a former diplomat in high regards, and the venue of the ceremony was filled to capacity. There were tributes from the UN Secretary General and from Ghanaian President Nana Kufuado. But the most moving speeches came from those who knew Mr. Annan best, his wife and children. His son Kojo said his father's singular gift was that he believed in humanity's potential and in everyone's ability to achieve extraordinary things if given the opportunity. 20 people have been killed after a truck carrying scores of people back from a village fair in central Mali plunged into a river after its brakes failed. A government statesman, statement rather says the accident occurred late on Monday in the central Saya region. At least 63 people were rescued and searches are continuing. Accidents are common in Mali where bad roads and properly kept vehicles abound with scant respect for traffic rules. The death toll from a cholera outbreak in Zimbabwe has risen to 24. The World Health Organization says the first line of antibiotics are struggling to treat the disease which has spread from the capital, Harare. The outbreak has prompted the health ministry to declare an emergency in the capital. There are at least 1,900 suspected cases so far. Authorities have also banned public gatherings in Harare, while health ministry personnel are supervising burials of victims. A shop and a vehicle belonging to a Somali nationals have been torched allegedly by angry commu- community members at Chamahansi Township outside Mokopani in Limpopo province in South Africa. They were reacting to the fatal shooting of a 24-year-old man who was accused of stealing a packet of chips. Dumi Koza was allegedly killed by a local businessman who was hired out of his store to Somali shopkeepers. Koza's uncle George Koza says they are shocked by his killing. When I arrived here, I just saw him lying down. When I asked what was happening, they said that one of the guys, the one who was working in the shop, they just shot him. So I went out asking what was happening on that. He said, no, you just pick up the, 
Zimba Chiefs, and eventually they started the fight. So on that fight, and that guy, the one who was working on the lottery, take out the gun and just try to shoot. So for whatever reason, we don't know. And we were very shocked of, about what happened. And finally, heavy rains caused by Hurricane Florence are now approaching the coast of North Carolina in the United States. Forecasters are warning of life-threatening floods, even though the hurricane near the east coast has weakened. George, Georgia, North and South Carolina, Virginia and Maryland are under a state of emergency. Bethany Bitune is the mayor for Myrtle Beach in South Carolina, one of the areas which the storm is expected to hit. Even though it has been downgraded to a category two, it is still going to give us the effects of a three or a four. We have so many natural bodies of water around us and everything that is in those waters is going to be in the floodwaters as well, including wildlife and reptiles, all kinds of things. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. This is Africa Digest. It's now 17.05 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa with myself, Samor Mangesi, standing in for Spumelele Zondi. The South Sudan warring parties have signed their final agreement to begin a new chapter of South Sudan uh, that of to begin a new chapter in South Sudan, that of peace. Now, President Salva Kiir and opposition leader Riek Machar, alongside other parties, signed the final agreement at the IGAD summit held in Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Coletta Wanyoni reports. The summit was attended by heads of state from the Igat region. South Sudan, Somalia, Uganda, Djibouti, Ethiopia were represented by their heads of state, while Kenya was represented by its foreign affairs minister. South Sudan question was the only agenda. The president of South Sudan, Salva Kiir, and the opposition leader, Riek Mashar, signed the final revitalized peace agreement without any reservations. They were also joined by other opposition groups that are party to the agreement. Festus Mohai, the chairman of the Joint Monitoring and Evaluation Committee that was tasked with following up on the implementation of the peace agreement signed in 2015, says this finalizes what he calls a senseless war that destabilized South Sudan since 2013. This process has taken us to different capitals of the region and beyond and has endured many challenges. But most importantly, it has registered remarkable successes Notably, the agreement on the cessation of hostilities, protection of civilians and humanitarian access signed in December 2017. The various agreed texts initiated by the parties here in Addis Ababa, the different bridging proposals developed by the facilitators that helped the party to narrow areas of disagreement, the face-to-face meetings between President Salva Kiir and Dr. Riek Mashar, held here in Addis Ababa, Khartoum, and Entebbe, and the Khartoum Declaration of Permanent Ceasefire of June 27, 2018, the Agreement on Outstanding Governance and Security Arrangements signed in Khartoum, and finally, the revitalization the chairman of the Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD, who is also the Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Dr. Abi Ahmed, says the decision by South Sudan warring parties must be followed by immediate implementation. 
The eyes of the world are upon us as the South Sudan leaders commit today to pass for reconciliation and lasting peace in their country. This indeed is a major milestone and a great stride towards building and lasting peace. As we witness this historic milestone, we remember and grieve for the victims of violence and hope this agreement close that dark chapter in South Sudan. With this new revitalized peace agreement, the leaders of Africa's youngest nation, South Sudan, must now strive to put in place a permanent ceasefire, working transitional government of national unity, ensure there is a working constitution as well as proper security arrangement, with all the military being encouraged to be under one command. The leaders should also ensure that they encourage stability within the country so that refugees can return home. The Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Abi Ahmed, says the government and opposition groups that are now party to this new agreement must exercise high level of compromise and dedication. By signing this agreement, South Sudan leaders exercise leadership and demonstrate courage to bring a peaceful resolution of the conflict that has been unrevealing for so long. Nonetheless, a mere signing of this agreement will not solve the problem, for the agreement is not self-executing. Lasting peace requires the commitment of every one of us to work in earnest for more peaceful, democratic, unified South Sudan. The leaders of South Sudan can count on the full support of Igad nations in their effort to fully observe the, the spirit and letter of this agreement. There was a lot of excitement from the delegations of both the government and opposition groups at the summit from South Sudan as they witnessed their leaders put ink to what they all hope will be the final peace agreement and a beginning of stability. South Sudan plunged into internal conflict in 2013 when President Salva Kiir and his then Vice President Riek Mashar got into a power struggle. Since then, thousands have been killed in the conflict. Over one million people from South Sudan have been forced to be refugees in neighboring Uganda, Ethiopia and Sudan. And South Sudan's economy was badly affected. Since the peace talks began in December 2013, brokered by the Intergovernmental Authority for Development, IGAD, more than 10 agreements have been signed by the warring parties of South Sudan, but they never adhered to any. Koletan Johi for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. The BBC has reported for the last three years about Radio Alwan, the independent Syrian news station which broadcasts in exile from Istanbul. The last time the BBC visited just before Christmas in 2016 and despite having had their office in Aleppo smashed by militants and one of their chief correspondents killed in an airstrike, the staff were upbeat planning an expansion of their services and new programs broadcast from Idlib. The BBC's Emma Jane Kirby checks in with them and find out, finds out that little has gone to plan. Eighteen months ago and the future looked bright for Radio Al-1. A new drama series was launching. Listeners were clamouring for a third series of its popular soap opera. But when I asked Sami, head of special projects, if I could come to Istanbul to visit the studios again, he told me there was no point. The staff had been let go and the office had shut. Out of the blue we get the news that uh, funding will be stopped 
for any radio station taking place in North West Syria, which where we work and operate in Idlib. And that's how we lost uh, the fund. Just to be clear, Sami, was that the Trump administration pulling yes. the stabilization funding in, in April this year? That's correct. And uh, that sudden decision left us helpless and we were not able to pay the expenses of uh, operating the staff. While Sami searches for alternative funding, Radio Alwan is still clinging to the airwaves. Astonishingly, the program you're hearing now is being broadcast from Idlib, where a team of two female presenters, two male presenters and a couple of sound engineers continue to make two shows a day. The team set up there because 18 months ago, Idlib looked like a fairly safe Syrian province. We still have six people in Idlib. They are terrified. They fear uh, a chemical attack. We don't know what's, what's going to happen. It will be far worse from what happened in Daran Ghouta, considering the huge amount of people in, in Idlib. We know that they are trapped. Turkey's border is closed. They cannot pass at all. They have limited sources. Yeah, it's it's not easy. Uh, you know, I don't know what or how, how I will react if something happened to to one of them. It's very difficult, and it's uh, yeah, I I try not to think about it. There's no money and no place in the schedule now for programs like the station's showcase soap opera, Sad Northern Nights. But the Idlib-based journalists don't only broadcast news. Poor equipment and constant security threats, says Sami, have not dampened their professional ambitions. We have different topics from things that related to literature and poetry to topics related to women from their point of view. We also talk about music and uh, singers and how Syria used to be, like the moderate nature of Syria. Next week, the Idlib team even hopes to start up their listener phone-ins again. It's dangerous, explains Special Projects Chief Sami, to leave the Syrian airwaves empty. Such things help radical groups like Al-Nusra and HTS because people like us, they are trying to promote a moderate speech, try to pull people out of the radical Islamic speech that radical groups try to promote in these areas. So we're leaving this space empty and we're making it for them very easy to promote their, their speech, their uh, agenda. That's, that's, that's the worst thing that happened after this program is stopped. And that report was compiled by the BBC's Emma Jane Kirby. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. 
we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Channel Africa leading the Women's Month conversations. September is an important month for Africa's last absolute monarch, recently renamed Kingdom of Eswatini. The small landlocked South African, uh, Southern African nation officially commemorated its 50th anniversary of independence from British colonial rule earlier this month. Jane Rabutata reports. King Mswati III surprised his subjects in April when he announced that the country would be officially renamed the Kingdom of Eswatini. The monarch was celebrating his 50th birthday at the time as well as the 50th anniversary of independence, although the official date is on 6 September. While the Swazi people appreciate and understand that the new name is how their forefathers would refer to the land, the country's new name has been equally received with great criticism. Those concerned argue that any change of the name ought to have followed a consultative process or ought to have followed a process that seeks to amend the constitution. The Kingdom of Eswatini, formerly known as Swaziland, was a British colony until 1968, the birth year of Makose Dive, who was later crowned King Mswati III in 1986 when he was just 18. I pray that God will help me to discharge worthily this heavy task that has been laid upon me so early in my life. Today, King Mswati is Africa's last absolute monarch in the sense that he has the power to choose the prime minister, other top government posts and top traditional posts. Mswati's kingdom has significant economic and cultural ties with neighboring South Africa, as political analyst Jacob Lamini explains. The fact is that there are more Swazis living in South Africa than in Southland itself. Siswati is one of South Africa's official languages. The cultural and family ties are strong. For a century, most of them have worked or have family in South Africa. The Kingdom of Eswatini has the world's highest prevalence of HIV and AIDS, with 40% of the population suffering from the disease. Despite the plight of the country's population, the polygamous king often gains attention of the international press when choosing a new wife, notably when in 2004 he chose then 16-year-old Miss Teenage Swaziland. <laughs> Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. Time is now 17.19 Central African time. And a quick reminder, if you do want to get in contact with us, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za and on Twitter, it's at channelafrica1. Now, there were 5.2 million new internal displacements associated with conflict and violence in the first half of 2018. This is according to a report by the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, otherwise known as the IDMC. The report indicates that countries in the Horn of Africa bore the brunt of displacement, with Ethiopia topping the global list. To further discuss this, we are now joined on the line by the Regional Director of the Norwegian Refugee Council, Nigel Trix. Hi, Nigel. How's it going? Hi, very well, thanks. Thank you very much for joining us and uh, talking to us about this issue. But I want to talk more about the situation of internal displacement in Ethiopia. Just how serious is it? 
That's very serious. Uh, Ethiopia is not a country that's known for internal displacement. It's a country that has received and hosted millions of refugees from its neighboring countries. So to see such a high figure arrive in a relatively short time in Ethiopia is uh, really quite shocking. And and this is a country that's going through tremendous change at the moment. So um, I think the world needs to be alert to the significant uh, significance of this event. Now, you are concerned that the world is seemingly turning a blind eye to Ethiopia. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that? Well, I think that at a time uh, where Ethiopia is, is going through uh, change, a lot of it very positive, they've got this major crisis on their hands. Uh, and this is on the back of uh, many years of um, the drought, consecutive years of drought and floods. And at a time when it's hosting uh, almost a million refugees from neighboring countries to suddenly be landed with 1.4 million people who are displaced and who need help uh, constantly and on the t- all the time um, and not getting the international help they need is, is, is putting a tremendous burden on both the, the government and the aid agencies that are working in, in Ethiopia. And uh, right now, the, the provision of essential services of food and water are stretched to the limit. Now, we have seen other countries go through this before um, and and some of them it's been resolved. What What is the plan going forward in terms of uh, what we are seeing in Ethiopia? And is there any way that we can adopt some of the, the, the plan of action that we have seen from other countries? Well, the Ethiopian government is very proactive in responding to its emergency. But the appeal that they put out uh, for one area of this displacement alone <coughs> in the south, where there are 600,000 people displaced, uh, is only 25% funded. And uh, you know, when you're only 25% funded, you can't implement the plan that you have. So we have confidence that if the funding comes in and if the support is given to the Ethiopian people, then an adequate response can be given. And so with the right resources and with the right attention, we're confident that a, a good outcome can be, can be found. But in the long term, we have to find uh, some kind of reconciliation process so that people can go back once they feel safe uh, to go home. Do we not feel that the global community is overwhelmed with various sorts of humanitarian crises at the moment? I think that is exactly the problem to your uh, part problem and part of your earlier question. Um, the reason why this isn't being funded, I think, is because there are so many other crises in the world. That's true. But perhaps because this crisis is further away from the immediate attention of the Europeans and the North Americans, this is a crisis that is far from home. And you know, the Ethiopian government is very proactive in responding, and so they're kind of left to their own devices to get on with it. Whereas, actually, if you think about having a population of 1.4 million people displaced, and that's the size of a large city, uh, suddenly homeless and in need of all every, every needs, um, this is something that requires more attention. Uh, you know, it is, it, is a, it is a humanitarian crisis of global proportions. Now, could you tell us about the Norwegian Refugee Council and tell us about the work that you guys do and how that ties in with what is happening in Ethiopia at the moment? Well, we've been in Ethiopia for many years and in some areas where we're already working, it's a question of diverting resources that we might have had for other humanitarian, longer-term humanitarian crises or more developmental work. Mm-hmm. And uh, diverting those to where we can help immediately. Otherwise, we're sending in new uh, rapid response teams under the coordination of the Ethiopian government to, to provide uh, food, uh, to provide water, sanitation, uh, to 
populations alongside other agencies for providing health care and education and other services to ensure that people who, who have left their homes, in many cases homes have been destroyed or their livestock has, has, has gone, and um, they need everything for those immediate first days, but then they need to be catered for in the, in the months that follow. Um, we're also working with the Ethiopian government to ensure that ultimately there's a safe place for people to go home and people have the right information to make informed decisions so they can go home when they're confident that uh, it's right. If we don't get this right, then uh, we're also ready to help put in, uh, we're putting in prevention measures against the, the outbreak of disease, for example, um, because, as we said earlier, there isn't enough money, so the services aren't as good as they could be, and so there's a real threat of disease if people stay. Or there's a threat that if people don't feel uh, that they're getting the life-saving uh, services they need in the, in the displacement camps, they may go home to places that are not safe or that uh, where they don't feel comfortable. All right, Nigel, thank you very much for speaking to us about this very important issue. And we uh, wish you all the best as the Norwegian Refugee Council, especially uh, with regards to the work that you guys are doing in Ethiopia right now. That was Nigel Trix, Regional Director of the Norwegian Refugee Council. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. The African Development Bank is to boost African agricultural development and output with a 1 billion US dollar fund under its Feed Africa project, which is meant to redirect Africa's focus to agriculture for self-sustenance and increase uh, the continent's prospects in foreign exchange earnings. To this end, a new initiative known as Technology for African Agricultural Transformation has been introduced with the aim of advancing the agriculture programs of the individual African countries. The project coordinators say they will monitor the utilization of the funds for accountability. Colin Zatohengbe reports. Power market returns for African mineral and other raw materials exports to the international market has witnessed a considerable drop in projected earnings, especially with regard to crude oil and other solid minerals like gold, which in the past were money spinners for African nations. In the face of possible economic collapse and severe recession which many of African economies are battling with, the African Development Bank came up with a continental agricultural development program to give attention once again to the SY profession which guaranteed Africa's future in the ability to feed self and have enough for exports. Agriculture, which used to be Africa's mainstay, suffered a decline in commitment as solid minerals took the front burner for Africa's export toward markets. 
without a corresponding infrastructural development for value addition. But with a budget of $1 billion investment for agricultural development under a Feed Africa project, the African Development Bank has set the agenda for Africa to return to the farms, produce for self, make enough for foreign exchange earning, thereby reduce dependence on food import without losing sight of its potential to develop its raw materials with value addition. Speaking at the AFDB conference in Abuja, the coordinator of the Technology for Africa Agricultural Transformation Program, Chris Akem says the budgeted fund to be released will be monitored strictly to ensure compliance and accountability in utilization. We want to know what you have done and we also want to know how you spend the money. You have to count for every penny. Unfortunately, that's the rules of the African Development Bank and we have to abide for them. You have to start the game very transparent and deliver on what you agree you deliver. With the aim of making remarkable progress in agriculture to meet the needs of the continent's semi population, the director of the West African Agricultural Productivity Project, James Ocheme, says the new initiative is expected to go beyond the scope of previous programs of the African Development Bank under the West African Agricultural Transformation Program. Instead of us now going to have a second phase of work, it's now going to be West Africa Agricultural Transformation Program. So the scope now will go beyond just ordinary productivity. The AFDB projected development is expected to go beyond food crops and economic produces to take into consideration other conventional agricultural activities like animal husbandry and fisheries. But despite the availability of abundance of water in Africa, the level of aquaculture in Africa is not encouraging. Professor Bernadette Fregene, an expert in wildlife studies, says Africa's contribution to the total world output of fish is only about 2%. With all our water bodies, especially in Nigeria, only 9.5 when you look at the world production data. And in terms of aquaculture, Africa produces only 2.3%. Though the African Development Bank is providing the fund, it requires that the various projects to be embarked upon must be tailored to fit into the program of individual national program. What this could translate to is that even where there may be working funds for the project envisaged, the end result may not tally with the objectives especially where national projects may be at variance with the agenda of the Continental Financial Institution. From Lagos, Nigeria, I am Collins Nosa Atohengbe for Channel Africa News. Comments made by former South African President Jacob Zuma has left South Africans confused. And this is something that we're definitely going to be speaking about uh, when we come back from the news headlines with Shwalani Tulu. Thank you, Samora. Making headlines, the United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres has laid tribute at the funeral of one of his predecessors, Kofi Annan. Annan died last month at the age of 80. 20 people have been killed after a truck carrying scores of people back from a village fair in central Mali plunged into a river after its brakes failed. And finally, the death toll from a cholera outbreak in Zimbabwe has risen to 24. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. This is Africa Digest.
President Jacob Zuma has been in the news this entire week. A lot of people speaking about a lot of things, but uh, right now we're going to be talking about some comments that uh, he made which left South Africans confused. In his latest speech, Zuma was addressing the South African Student Council organization, uh, or it, it is me- their members at the Walter Sulu University in the Eastern Cape, and Zuma says the judiciary, the legislature, and the executive are not captured. Zuma said the term was used by people who wanted to achieve certain political outcomes. To talk to us more about this, we are joined on the line by a political analyst by the name of Theo Fenter. Theo, thank you very much for joining us. Good afternoon. Theo, what do you make of uh, former President Jacob Zuma's latest remarks, especially on the state being captured? Well, I think at the um, most simple um, way I would define this as creating an alternative narrative. In other words, to 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 inject uh, different arguments into into the story. And I listened very carefully when he spoke. It's not the first time that he, that he said that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remind myself that he also said a similar thing in front of students on the Vault Triangle campus of the Northwest University a week or two ago. Yes. And before that, about two or three months ago, he um, he said the same thing at the Mangasutu Technicon. And uh, every time it's in front of students and every time it's a platform created for him through um, the Youth League or SASCO or whoever would like him to talk, trying to, 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 to create the idea that the notion of state capture, and we must not forget that he um, uh, appointed the Zondo Commission. While he was still president, the Zondo Commission was appointed, and it was appointed because he was threatened in court that unless he does some form of investigation following the Tuli Madoncela uh, State of Capture report, mm-hmm. then um, he will be in trouble. So he was, he was politically forced to appoint the Zondo Commission. All right. And how would you say his, uh, how would you frame his thinking right now? Well, I think the way in which he portrayed it, that neither the executive nor the judiciary nor the, nor the legislative is, is, is captured, that is not the definition of state capture. The, the definition of state capture is something that we borrowed from Eastern European economies where certain individual businessmen or large conglomerates yeah. kind of managed portions or sections of government, and this is exactly what we saw in South Africa. I mean, there mm-hmm. has been there has been bigger crooks, if you want to call it that, that did similar things. Just think about Brett Kevel years yes. ago, when he basically had the whole of the ANC youth eating out of his hand. We never called that state capture, mm-hmm. but it was, in a sense, a very similar thing. But now that we've got this word state capture, it is used so. Uh, the, the definition Zuma is trying is not at all the definition. The definition is far more individual business people. And then the important part, where business people um, develops the kind of access to decision-making um, that um, they can kind of uh, convince the president or decision-makers to move in a different direction. And this is exactly the kind of evidence that we heard from Frankie Montour and from Nsebezi Jonas. Mm, That's mm. exactly spot on. That is what we mean by state capture. And 
Theo, with regards to what we've been hearing about President, uh, former President Jacob Zuma, and of course the the meeting that happened in Durban, uh, the accusations of a plot to oust President Cyril Ramaphosa, do you think that the former president is up to something? Yes, he has been up to something ever since he was refused, or he was he was he was he was forced yes to resign his post. Um, he's not happy about that, and where uh, the same thing, of course, happened to Thabo Mbeki. Um, and what you would expect of a, of a president in his position is to is to lie low, to take um, to take the political punishment, um, and um, then later on do the elder statesman thing. But in Zuma's case, there's a legal case hanging around his neck, and I think what he does, this pushback from the Zuma side, is an effort to resolve these legal problems by political means. In other words, to force um, or to create such division in the ruling party that in the end the guys would say, let's get the old man out of our lives. Let's just make the court cases go away. But yes. that wouldn't happen. The independence of our legal system um, through Jacob Zuma in Kaelia developed just in such a way, if we think about it, and a few other things, that politically it wouldn't go away. Then mm-hmm. should we expect more revelations from the former state leader? Because I, I feel like there's a lot that is happening around him right now. And um, should we be expecting more? Yes, I think we should expect more. A lot of uh, posturing. I don't think establishment of, an, of a different political party is on. I think that is more kind of a, a political threat. But remember... We are into the ANC's process of, of of determining the lists for next year's election in September and October. So I think we see a repeat of the political mobilization that we saw in the month or so before Nasrek. That's why we see the activity at the moment. All right. Well, Theo, thank you very much for chatting to us and letting us know your views on uh, what is currently happening around the president. I have to say I enjoyed this conversation because uh, I I think you're a straight shooter and a lot of people needed to hear some (laughs) of the things that you said. (laughs) Thank you very much. Thank you, Theo. That is Theo Fenter, political and policy specialist at the Northwest University School of Business and governance. The time is now 17.38 Central African time. And a quick reminder of how you can get in contact with us. You can send us a WhatsApp to plus 27763003327 or you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also tweet us at channelafrica1. Hi, Nelson Holisasap Mandela. Do hereby sir to be faithful to the Republic of South Africa. He was not a ruler, like just telling people what to do. He didn't rule us, he led us. His role as president in the process of nation building was exemplary and wonderful. You could disagree with him, he would disagree with you, you could even be quite testy with each other, and yet it wouldn't affect the overall relationship of your own cooperation or friendship. Nelson Mandela a giant of two centuries.
Nigeria was recently ranked the ninth most dangerous place in the world to be a woman. Uh, according to a study by the Thompson Reuters Foundation, in cases of sexual violence, it came forth. The subject of domestic violence is often seen as taboo in Nigeria and brushed under the carpet. But in Lagos, a group of women are trying to tackle the stigma and shine a light on the problem. The BBC's Stephanie Hegart, uh, the BBC's Stephanie Hegart reports from Lagos. To work out with it, you have a sweet body now. We love you. Yes. yes. <laughs> Off the six-lane highway, lined with megachurches and housing estates, amongst the jumble of immaculate mansions and overcrowded apartment blocks, is an unassuming compound. And there, a group of ladies have gathered. They're here to support each other, because this is a centre for women who have suffered domestic abuse and violence. I was at the age of 19 when I met my children father. Sandra got pregnant outside of marriage and was forced by her parents to live with the father of her child. But he and his family never accepted her. Cursing me, insulting me, abusing me, different kind of things. I was pregnant when he was beating me, doing all those, smashing me, calling me names. I've faced this thing for almost 17 years now. Wait, how often does he beat you? Uh, all, even yesterday. Even yesterday. What, what did he do? Bite. He Ma- bit you? Bit me, mash. You're just showing us a bite mark on yes, your hand? Yes, yes. Pressing my neck, strangling my neck. And when he's done, later, he will not start begging. And when he start begging, we say I should open my hand for him to sex, even in the presence of the children. He wants to have sex with you in yes. the presence of the yes. children? Yes, If I refuse, we start calling, beating me again, calling me names. So, I don't know. So, as I am now, my mind is to live. Life is most important. Because if I should die in that place, my children also, they will not be happy. But it's not that simple. Sandra has seven children now and doesn't have the means to take them with her. And she's terrified of leaving them behind especially her teenage daughters. And even we started going out with little, little children in the area, carrying little underage children. He's going with underage girls. Underage. She's not the only woman here who's been in this position. I divorced the man 15 years, so I stay alone with my children now. So maybe the man is alive, he's not alive, I don't know. Fumilayo left her husband when he tried to sexually abuse her 12-year-old sister. They were all living in a one-room flat with her three young children. As he was on top of me, having fun with me, he was on top of me like this, pulling my sister's pants down. So my sister said, see me, see somebody is offering my pants. I said, slap the person. Then the girl did it. From there, the house is no more in good condition. She soon found out he had raped another child, the 12-year-old daughter of their landlord. She refused to sleep with him. And then, she says, he tried to kill her. He carried knife, knife, knife. He want to shoot, he want to cut my neck. Fimilayo points to a scar at the base of her throat, just above her collarbone. My daughter go inside, outside, calling people. Come and see, my daddy want to kill my mom, you want to kill my mom, before they collect the knife. Her daughter was just five years old when she saved her mother's life. 
So that's why I say no more to man and no marry anymore. Fumilaya left and raised her children and her sister alone. Now she's trying to advise people like Sandra to do the same. Nigeria was ranked the ninth most dangerous country in the world to be a woman in a recent global poll. But why is violence against women so common here? I want to hear from you people. Already I'm moving away from there. Males are not brought up consciously, even by our mothers, that this is how a man should treat a woman. Akin Femi George is a manager here at the center. We're in a society or an environment where the male is always the dominant figure and it is expected he should be dominant in every aspect. Personally speaking, even in my own family, I see it happening from very educated people as well, people that have lived abroad. The very rich, it happens, just that they don't say it, they don't talk about it. It's a problem in the African society. But this is not just a problem in Africa, domestic it's violence not, happens It's but it's everywhere. endemic here. It's worse here because it is easily swept under the carpet. That's because most of this abuse goes unreported. Even sometimes if they beat you, you go there, they will even chase you, that is a family matter. And you, the woman, you also, you like problem, go. Go and settle, all those kinds of things. Sandra went to the police station to report her husband when he raped the daughter of her friend, a 14-year-old girl. So when I went there, I now met a police friend of mine and he must say that I should go back, please. That this thing that I'm about to report, that is 21 years imprisonment. So the police advised you not to, yeah, to pursue it? Yes. Yes, I should go back. So I now went back home. That's what is happening in Nigeria. By coming together, these women are able to come to terms with what they've been through. And it's only small, privately run shelters like this one that offer them any protection from their abusers. And that report was by the BBC's Stephanie Hegarty in Lagos. Uh, 17.46 Central African time. One of my favorite times in the show because I get to chat to Wisani Matebula. Uh, ITU conference. That is closed today, right? Yes, they, they wrapped up the conference today with South African Telecommunications uh, mm-hmm. Minister Siabonga Kwele announcing the launch of an African Center for Digital Transformation in Pretoria. This at effectively means that they want to make sure that uh, technology is for everyone. It's not only for the elite or the rich, and it's accessible for for most people. All right. And something that that has caught my interest, and it might not be in your bulletin, but uh, the the South African Actors Guild, uh, South African Guild of Actors, actually, uh, has gone into Parliament today, and I know that Nambita um, Bumlwana... Florence Masebe, as well as Jack Devnerin, who are very well-known actors in South Africa. And I'm pretty sure a lot of uh, other African countries know who they are because, you know, these shows flight in these countries. Yes. But they're in, in Parliament f- uh, trying to fight for uh, residuals and royalties and, you know, to ensure... Have you ever been a freelancer? I've ne- never <laughs> been a freelancer, but I understand uh, what it means for them, especially uh, if we looking straight at performers and performances mm. they need you know to get those rights a percentage of a percentage exactly of uh whatever they have performed if it's ever flighted in another platform in another time and i mean especially because that ties directly in with how do we survive in the current economy speaking of which what is the state of the economy with sunny matabula tells us in the bulletin
Thanks, Samora. South Africa's morning production output for July 2018 is disappointing. Data that uh, Statistics South Africa has released shows a significant decline in mining production, which uh, decreased by 8.6% in July 2018 compared to June 2018. Economist Laura Campbell elaborates. It's unlikely that we will see a significant and sharp recovery in mining output until such time as there is certainty regarding the mining charter. The draft version has been criticized by industry players who say it will not encourage investments in this sector, which is so desperately needed. The weak mining production figures contribute towards the likelihood that the Reserve Bank will keep interest rates unchanged next week. And Telecommunications and Postal Services Minister of South Africa, Siabonga Kwele, has announced the launch of an African Centre for Digital Transformation in Pretoria. He made the announcement at the end of the ITU Teleworld Conference in Durban. Kwele says entrepreneurs will also be put in touch with potential financiers. You start your idea, and uh, as you start it, then you enter into this dangerous, uh, it's called the Valley of Death. Uh, before you become a company uh, which is profitable. It is to prevent our startups and SMEs to fall into that uh, dangerous valley of debt because currently very few pass through. It is to increase the throughput. Meanwhile, the Secretary-General of the International Telecommunications Union, Holin Zhao, says the United Nations body has made a conceited effort to since uh, 2015 to bring SMEs on board in the ITU's biggest annual event. Zoao says uh, the ITU Telecom Conference in Durban hosted 165 SMEs in its exhibition center. He says it exposes entrepreneurs to big companies and potential investors. And also we encourage big companies like uh, Ericsson, like uh, Huawei, like uh, uh, Intel, you know, try it, because they work very, 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 very uh, strong with uh, SMEs. Invite them to come to our event, uh, for them to talk to our SMEs, to, you know, to try to set up some partnerships. And from very beginning, 2015, we created some dialogue between SMEs and themselves, between SMEs and the big guys. And ratings agency Moody's uh, says the current land debate is creating a policy uncertainty in South Africa. Addressing the media in Johannesburg, Moody's senior credit officer Lucy Vila says investors are more interested in how the land reform will be carried out. Until we get the details of the law, very difficult for me to say. And knowing that, of course it means that until the law is proposed, uh, there is a bit of policy uncertainty because in particular foreign investors would wonder, okay, are they really going to stick to their word? Are they really going to put something forward that will enable that objective? And so yes, short term, probably a bit of uh, credit negative because of adverse investor sentiment. But again, without the details, very difficult to say. Financial indicators, the dollar trading at 10.71, Botswana Pula 10.29, Zambian Kwacha, BRICS currencies, dollar at 4.14, Brazilian Real 69.19, Russian Ruble 72.17, Indian Rupee and 6.86, Chinese Yuan. Commodities, gold at $1,205, platinum at $803 per finance, Brent crude oil $79.33 per barrel. That's how it's looking.
very big thank you to Wisani uh, Matebula with regards to that economics update. But right now, let's find out what is happening in the world of sport with Neto Chimani. A very good evening to all sport fans with your latest Channel Africa Sports News at this hour. I'm Neto and ETO Chamani. Starting off with Olympic news. The International Olympic Committee has backed calls by Japanese organizers to complete daylight savings time at the 2020 Tokyo Olympics as concerns amount over athlete safety in soaring temperatures. The IOC Coordination Commission Chief John Coates gave an unequivocal answer when asked if he supported an appeal made to Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe last month following a deadly summer heat wave across the country. At least 120 people perished as a result of the blistering heat this summer and with the 2020 Olympics being held in late July and early August, Japan's hottest time of the year. There are fears that athletes and fans could be at risk. On to tennis news. South African wheelchair women's tennis number one Khotata Monjani says she does not know the specifics of her partnership with the Limpopo Department of Sports, Arts and Culture. The department announced last month that they were going to work with the athlete as an ambassador for wheelchair tennis in the province. Monjani says she has not had time to sit down with the department officials to discuss details including how the parties are going to work. Elsewhere, Monjani has a project at her former school, Helen France Special School in Sinobarwana, and she is happy that they have so far managed to get tennis courts at the school from an anonymous donor. Remember, I left for the US Open, so I just came back on Monday, and I'm leaving again on on, on Saturday. So I, I think that's something I'm gonna have to come back and you know clear it out with the department on what what are we collaborating on on or going forward, because that's something that the department put it before me that they want us to collaborate in youth programs and see how can we inspire. The other athletes in the in the, in the province. I, I've started, uh, you know, a small project in where the school where I'm coming from, uh, make Helena France great. But uh, as I was in the process of looking for funding, you know, luckily there's someone. I'm not sure who it is, but someone who came and laid laid out the cards in the school, which uh, which is very great because that's what I was uh, fighting for. That the school that I came out of didn't have a sports facility yet, it produced a, a, a champion. But uh, I think that's problem solved, but there's other projects that need to be addressed in that school, which uh, I think I will look into that once uh, I'm, I'm settled. On to motorsport. Mercedes-British driver Lewis Hamilton says consistency has helped him and the team be ahead of the competition so far this season. Hamilton was speaking at an event in Singapore ahead of the city's state's night Grand Prix over the weekend. In the last three of his Formula One title wins, Hamilton has returned from the annual summer break in brilliant form, reeling off a succession of victories to close the door on his title rivals. On to football news. Referees from other African countries have started arriving in Uganda for the young talented referees course taking place in Kampala. 33 referees from the rest of the African continent are taking part in the course which starts on Friday and concludes on Tuesday the 18th of September. Ronnie Kalema is the Uganda Football Referees Chairman. As Uganda we are privileged to host the CAF Young Talent course, uh, the first of its kind in Uganda. 
CAF has been organizing courses, most of them at the headquarters in Cairo, but as Uganda, we requested to host one of the good courses in Africa, and uh, CAF accepted, so we are hosting 35 referees from different countries who are in the age of between 25 and 30, and finally, in cricket news, Durham's former England captain Paul Collingwood is to retire at the end of the season, 22 years after making his first class debut. The 42-year-old all-rounder became the first England skipper to win a global tournament when he led the team to victory at the ICC World T20 in 2010. He played in 68 tests, 197 one-day internationals and 36 T20s. Collingwood made his first class debut in 1996, won the the county championship in 2013 and one-day cup a year later. His final game will be at home to Middlesex starting on 24 September. Thank you for choosing Channel Africa. For Channel Africa Sports, I'm Neto and Eti Chamani. This is Africa Digest. That is how we wrap up this hour of Africa Digest. From myself, Samora Mangesi, producer Leander Maome, technical producer Swiso Mashekho, and the rest of the Africa Digest team, thank you so much for listening. For comments on the show, you can send us an email to info at channelafrica.co.za or you can send us a WhatsApp to plus 27763003327. You can also tweet us at channelafrica1. Taking us to the top of the hour is Mdanomdu by Kid X featuring Shwe Nomdekala. We'll see you later. I build solo bands, solo bands.